right. Hi, everyone. I'm Carly Vina, and this is episode 286 of At Percussion. Um, with me, as usual, is the wonderful, lovely co-host, Ksenia Komjanovic, um, and Ben Charles will be joining us a little later. Um, hey, Ksenia, how's it going? Going well, Carly, and how are you doing? Very good, very good. So we are recording this episode on May 8th, but if you're listening on release day, it'll be May 27th. So I'm wondering, Ksenia, what happened today in history? Almost nothing. I don't know how this stuff happens. There's like holes in, in the fabric of history, but okay, not, not nothing. Uh, in 1966, this is only important news for me, I feel like. Uh, Sean Kinney, the drummer for Alice in Chains, was born in Seattle. And I know nobody cares. Maybe if Casey was here, maybe he'd have a favorite song. Do you have a favorite song, Alice in Chains? I'm actually now just assuming. I literally cannot name an Alice in Chains song. So start, you're out of luck with this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, in that case, mine is down in a hole. Not that anyone asks. So. <laughs> I, I used to love them when I was a teenager. Um, but I guess the more important thing here is um, in 2003, we lost to the Italian composer Luciano Berio. Um, at the age of 77. And just a little bit about him, because he's an interesting or was an interesting figure. Um, so he was known for his breakthroughs in electronic music and some of his experimental work, his Sinfonia and the series of virtuosic solo pieces titled Sequenza, none of which were for percussion, sadly. Um, we, we missed out on that one. But uh, a couple of interesting facts about his life. So he was taught how to play the piano by his father and grandfather, who were both organists, and he was conscript conscripted into the army during World War II. And on his first day, he injured his hand while learning to use a gun. So he had to stop his piano career. And that's how he started thinking about composition. How interesting that, you know, this tragedy, uh, really pushed him into this space where he ruled the world, sort of. Um, and he hung out afterwards with all the big names. So he went and studied with Luigi Della Piccola a little bit at Tanglewood and then hung out with all the VIPs. So Stockhausen, Ligeti, Kogel, Boulez, Cage, all of them. He taught for a brief uh, amount of time in the US. So Mills College and then went on to Juilliard, which was a big deal. But what is really interesting is that his compositions frequently interacted with other people's work. So he made transcriptions or completed other people's work. So Schubert, Brahms, Puccini, and even Lennon and McCartney. He hung out with the Beatles and the Beatles looked to him and to Stockhausen for inspiration. Um, and I thought it was so super interesting that he actually arranged songs um, I guess for his at the time wife who uh, was a singer. And I have a little bit of this and I'm gonna play it even if they flag us. Casey can be mad at me, but oh, he can't say anything now. So listen to this. Isn't that awesome? I think that's so, so, so cool. Hey, Ben, you missed out on our Berio meets the Beatles. Oh, but sorry actually, about that. That was, that was the perfect music to introduce Ben to the show. 
We'll invite Hi, you everybody. some Beatles. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> a little bit of Beatles. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool. And you can go and check out, there's an entire album of this. And it's it's amazing. It really, really sounds amazing. Um, but I guess the coolest little thing that I found out about him was that he had a, was a notable uh, comedian, I guess. So on one day, he gave a two-hour seminar at a summer school in the US analyzing Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, demonstrating that it was a work of radical genius. And on the next day, he gave another two-hour seminar with a completely straight face showing why it was hopelessly flawed and a creative dead end. The same piece. Wow. And I thought that was that's brilliant. If you can spend two hours defending something, being a proponent, and then another two hours being completely opposite. I mean, that's that's amazing. So there you go. We get to celebrate a little bit of Betty and a little bit of Alice in Chains. <laughs> there it is. You said you said Beethoven seven, right? Yeah. I don't know how you spend two hours saying that that work is not worthwhile. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but there you go. He was the godfather. He knew everything and commanded respect. And I guess the man had a sense of humor, too. Thank you, Ksenia. Um, without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today. Um, today we have Dr. Caitlin Jones joining us. Caitlin has an active career as a performer and as an educator, and she's currently serving on the faculty of Lee University in Tennessee. Um, she's also active as a soloist and orchestral percussionist, and she recently gave the world premiere of The Long Road by Andy Harnsberger um, just last fall, I think, in 2020, which we'll, I think, be talking about later. And she's performed uh, with the Augusta Symphony, the Charleston Symphony, and the South Carolina Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, she was noted in 2016 as an emerging leader by PAS and is a member of the PAS Health and Wellness Committee. And she performed at PASIC back in 2019, the last time it was in person and holds degrees from UF, University of Florida, from Lee University and University of South Carolina. So thanks for joining us, Caitlin. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you guys all for having me and taking the time out to talk to me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's get into it. Would you tell us a little bit, how's it been at, at Lee University this, this school year and especially this spring semester? Are you wrapping up? Yeah, I'm finished, thankfully. Um, put Did marathon grading session like two nights ago, set I'm out. I got to do this recording session coming up. Um, and thankfully, we were in person the whole year. So we were able to make it work. So yeah, can't complain. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like what I, I keep thinking about what awesome things we're learning. What are we going to keep when things are like totally normal and we don't have to wear masks and all that? Have there been any big takeaways for you, um, you know, with with teaching this year? Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's been a bunch. I think um, obviously cleanliness is going to be, I think, a more important part of our everyday lives going forward. I think also the idea of being more introspective. I have to take breaks. I have to reevaluate. I don't have to just grind, 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 grind constantly is going to be something hopefully we hold on to and don't just throw by the wayside as we move forward. Yeah, that's, that's been one of the biggest things for me too, is just like, we all had forced time off, um, some more than others and some an awful lot. And probably a lot of positive things came out of that. And every time I talk about positive things with the pandemic, I want to be careful not to say, you know, like, yeah, it's so great. I'm diving into these creative projects because it's like, of course, there's so much heartbreak and grief and struggling going on, but um, that's a big one. And, and kind of just 
I know we're going to talk about this later, but taking care of your body, taking care of your mind, take, you know, mental health especially um, is really important. And you think about, you mentioned cleanliness. Think about like we used to, sh well, some people probably still are sharing mallets, but like, like even we're sharing tambourines and we lick our fingers and we like that beeswax has everybody's saliva on it. Oh. I, I was gonna say, Carly, I think you and I are probably uh, tambourine spit siblings from Miami. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. And like hundreds of other percussionists <laughs> we've played with at least once. Ugh. Oh yeah, Pedro, Mike, yeah, we're all, Ksenia, you probably got some of it passed down. <laughs> <laughs> Indirectly. <laughs> Sorry, Caitlin, I think you were gonna say something. No, no, I was just saying, yeah, it's awful to think about how much we share things. So I'm glad that's over. <laughs> well, uh, Caitlin, as a, a sort of segue from this, uh, Carly had mentioned how the pandemic has changed our approach to things. And one thing a lot of people have talked about is recording. And obviously for multiple reasons, but one of which is if we can't perform live, it's pretty common to be putting out recordings. Uh, and Carly also mentioned that you work with Andy Harnsberger at Lee University. And I remember talking to someone about Andy recording with John Parks and they said, Andy's a monster player and John can hear the grass grow. <laughs> so like, just like a winning combination. And Andy is, I think, just one of the, the best marimba players in the world easily. And I see clips of you and Andy playing together all the time. So could you tell us about what it's like to get to, to work with on, I'm assuming a daily basis, basically this marimba virtuoso? Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, so I actually, I studied with him. I got my master's at Lee and then I, him and Scott Herring are really good friends. And I got my doctorate with Scott Herring at University of South Carolina. So uh, this past year, 2019, 2020, actually was the first time I took a break from anything academic. I was working at three gyms, trying to make it happen. And Harnsberger got his PASIC showcase concert. So myself, Scott Herring and Bailey Seabury, another doctorate student, that's when we all started getting to play with Harnsberger and it was just awesome. All of us, nothing school related, completely just for the music, new pieces. What can we make out of this concert? And that's how it all started. And then I got the lead job and it's just been, what can we churn out? Don't let the pandemic slow us down. Let's keep it moving. Let's not stop. Let's be better. Let's keep growing. So I feel very fortunate that I'm in that situation. And can you tell us what it's like to have the uh, the Pomeranian in, I think, every rehearsal you do? <laughs> I'll give you a secret about Lee. I don't know if I'm supposed to share this, but we have this, we're in Pangle Hall is the name, and the hallway is lined with posters of past concerts, but it's also lined with, there's probably 15 or 20 posters of Chester the Pomeranian with motivational quotes. So, I mean, he's like our school mascot. He's awesome. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> So yeah, does like he every actually... post Andy makes, there's the, there's the Pomeranian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's at school fairly frequently. The students love him. He's great. That's awesome. Does he actually like, he'll chill even with like loud drummy stuff and... Um, I, I've heard he doesn't like snare drum as much. I'm usually around him when we're doing marimba and he'll just sit and listen and loves yeah. it. Yeah, my, my dog, Dexter, he loves marimba unless it's something really fast and then he'll like be like, hey, let me out of here. I don't want to be in here. But vibraphone's no good. Snare drum, no. Anything too loud, like, no. <laughs> yeah, that's how my dog is as well. He loves Bach, though. Oh. Bach and marimba, that's like, that's great. That's good sleeping, napping, napping music. 
Nice. Awesome. Um, well, while we're talking about Andy Harnsberger, tell us a little bit about this piece, The Long Road and, and the collaboration and, you know, any anything about the recording process? Yeah, so this came about probably when quarantine first started, so March of 2020, and he just got on this writing train and just said, let me just see how much I can put out now that I'm at home, not really doing much. And so I said, I would love to have a piece if you're willing to write one. And he said, of course. And I gave him some parameters. I didn't want it to be straightforward, idiomatic. Here's a permutation. We're going to run with it. We're going to fly across the room. But I wanted it to be a little bit different in terms of that. I didn't want any roles. I specified that as well. And I just said, go for it. See what happens. And so then I came to Lee and I was fortunate to have one concert pan out this past year. And I said, I need to play it. You know, you wrote it. Let's make it happen. So I was able to play it in October. It was a really cool experience at Wachita Baptist University with a fellow USC doctorate grad, Ryan Lewis. He's a teacher there. And then comes full circle. I have a friend, another friend from USC, Chase Banks, who has started this recording company called Greenhouse Productions. And he, with a friend, Graham Rosner from USC, recorded all Harnsberger's PASIC videos. And so they came to Lee in December and I had the chance to work with them and put out the video and I think it's like 18,000 views now. So it was super exciting. I'm very thankful for them. And so we're gonna do that again in um, a day. So I've been practicing <laughs> a lot recently. We're gonna do another recording session Monday through Wednesday, so. I want to hear about that too, but even even before that, would you tell us for some of our younger listeners that might be, well, even like well, we all do self-recording often, you know, like get all the cameras and mics and do the best we can. What's your experience been? How is it different working with a crew that's handling the recording? Um, maybe some pros pros and cons from your experience. Yeah, um, something that I think one of the cons in today's day and age is no one shares one take videos anymore, it seems. People are very scared. There's this level of, it has to be perfect. And if I'm with a recording engineer, it can be almost perfect or perfect versus if I share my live performance, what are people gonna say? If I share one take, I recorded it myself, what are they gonna think? So that's maybe one of the cons, but one of the pros is, is you do have a chance to put out your best effort near perfection that I don't know might not have been attainable otherwise. Yeah, I personally love both. Um, I have really enjoyed working with Greenhouse because I am horrific with technology. Even today, I was like testing the Zoom like an hour ago just to make sure everything's set up. So um, yeah, it's really nice when someone that is on it knows what they're doing is just guiding you and you can just play. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Michael Lorello on the podcast, who is a composer, but also does a lot of recording engineering. And he said one one topic that comes a lot comes up a lot in recording is authenticity. And he kind of just blatantly said, like, it's not authentic. It's a recording. It's not the same. It's different. So what's what's your take on authenticity and in, in recording? Yeah, I am actually I was just talking about this with Harnsberger the other day. So we're doing a brand new duo. And we've never done a straight run through. So this idea of pacing, of shaping, phrasing, you have to really be hypersensitive because we've never had the chance to go through the whole piece. And here's the arc of the story we're trying to tell. It's here's these four bars. So I, I totally agree with that statement. I'm, uh, I want to see what I can do in one take, you know? I think it's going to be, 
I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes because I've never personally been in that boat. I've always had the chance to play the piece at least once live and then let's come back and record. I know whenever I record myself, even just casually, just to check how I sound, I, I find I'm always significantly faster than, than I thought I was. Do you have any sort of tendencies you've noticed like that from all the recording you've done during the pandemic? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm I also play I'm not... far fewer right notes than I thought I did when I was. <laughs> Nerves is a big thing, yeah. Um, I will say in terms of getting ready, I have a really hard time of letting go of control with things like, I don't wanna turn the metronome off. I don't wanna either, if I'm doing this section, I don't wanna go any further past, it has to be perfect. In terms of going back and watching the takes, I haven't had that experience that much because that's all on their end. So maybe they have found some things about me that I don't know, <laughs> they kept it hidden. <laughs> <laughs> They'll tell you after they hear this. Yeah. <laughs> You know, going back for a second to what you're saying about, you know, we're talking about live, um, you know, one take live performance recordings versus studio recording. I, I think it's last week we had Diana Loomer on the show and she was talking about somebody asked, I think, uh, like, what was your process like recording this piece? And she's like, oh, like, I just ran through it and got one really good run. And there it is. Like, I didn't even know that you could do it in segments and edit together. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of younger students think that, too. Like when they're on YouTube, they're thinking like, wow, that person is a beast. And they probably are a beast. I'm sure they are. But it's not that everybody has no perfect performances like 100 percent of the time. And these superstars are on YouTube, you know, so it can be a little bit like like we have we have some kind of dysmorph what's the word dysmorphia yeah it's yeah. like dyspeptic yeah and yeah. I, I don't know i think that's one of the things um that can be so tough with with the mental side of of the pandemic especially because we're only really able to express ourselves through recordings and and there's this kind of ideal like perfection we want everything to be perfect if we're going to post it so Caitlin, how do you record? As we mentioned, there are those people who do, you know, full runs and then they do bits and snippets. Do you have a producer? Um, who do you rely on for perfection? Uh, those that achievable perfection? Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to like, I did a bunch of little videos this summer and I tried to do everything one take. So if it's me, I just want to go for it and see what I can do. And if there's a wrong note, there's a wrong note, but I did it this is the whole overarching picture. It's not, here's eight bars, here's eight bars. Now, in terms of like the greenhouse thing, I leave it totally up to them. I'll know if the notes and the phrasing was good, but how was that chunk for you in terms of where you were standing for the audio and the video? So I haven't really seen the post-production side. I think that's a whole, yeah, foray I haven't stepped into. Cause I'll just do the one take and post it, bam. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't, uh, you don't uh, get to give them any input about, okay, I like these takes, let's take this and I prefer this one. In terms of the audio when we're doing it, yeah. Okay, take two, that was it. Let's leave it there. We did three, but take two, that's the one I want. And then they send everything back when it's almost the final product and you can say, um, that video shot, my hands weren't quite aligned with what was happening. Was there another take you could use instead? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting because I think uh, whenever I record, I cannot trust myself because I am so <laughs> hypnotized. I can say, okay, that was that was nails, that was great, but otherwise, I really need distance. I need to record something and then step away from it for days, and then I go back to it and listen to it objectively and be like, 
okay, well, that maybe was not perfect, but actually this time that I ran it was much better in terms of sensibility and energy and so on. So I feel like I, I always have to have, because I'm, yeah. I'm a control freak. I'm like, oh, I need to decide everything. I'll tell you what you're going to put together. <laughs> so I'm with you, Ksenia, on that one. Like, If there's days to step away and come back, absolutely. That's a, a healthier way for me. But I'm also thinking it sounds like a really luxurious way to make a recording if you have if you, when you find that team that you trust and be like here like make it sound great and of course you know they're percussionists they know the repertoire and are making smart decisions that's almost even better that we're always biased when we listen to ourselves sometimes we're biased in the sense of like wow like i'm so amazing and sometimes we're like like this is so terrible it's so much worse than i thought but there's some kind of bias based on i think how we're feeling when we're recording that's a good point. Now that you say that, because I, I now you, I do trust Chase a lot, and I'll have to tell him that. <laughs> like they brought up that I must really trust you. Yeah, I mean we went to school together, and yeah, I totally value his input. And let's go with what you just said. Yeah, that's interesting. There we go. Well, since you you've got some recording sessions coming up, tell us tell us what are you doing this week? Yeah, so I'm doing a solo piece and a duo piece. The solo piece is a movement. You brought up Lig Ligeti earlier. So this is Ligeti's son, Lucas Ligeti, the piece Thinking Songs. I'm doing the third movement from it. I wrote my dissertation on the entire work, but I'm only going to play the third work for this recording session, third movement. And then the next day, Harnsberger and I are going to do a new duo he wrote. So I'm really excited for both because they're vastly different. I think it'll be awesome. That's great. And this is all with the same Greenhouse Productions. That's awesome. Yeah. So they're making their rounds. They just went to Furman, they're coming here and I believe they're going to Arkansas after us. So if anyone needs them, get them while they're hot. They're doing awesome. And they're I did see uh, Omar at Furman has uh, just many fantastic ideas. And he made a Facebook post about, basically he said like, we went all in this year on recording. Like we, we said, we're not going to perform we're just gonna prepare the hell out of music and then put together a giant recording project with Greenhouse at the end of the year. And I'm I'm really looking forward to what turns out of that. I think that's a that was a very wise angle to the pandemic. Um, and Omar also had a great idea about his percussion methods class. He said, instead of like stressing everyone out with a final, they had this really productive, interesting discussion about music education with some music educators out in the field. So shout out to Omar for doing great things. Yeah, I saw that today too. I saw that. Um, I think that's that's probably the most productive way for, in a lot of circumstances to handle percussion ensemble and I mean, just everything through the pandemic. But speaking of recordings, Ben, I think you've got you've got a topic related topic for us today. Yeah, I came across this really interesting article uh, from a website called Dazed Digital, uh, and you can Google it. It has musical examples, but I don't want to play them so we don't get flagged for copyright, but you should go check out the examples on it. Uh, the article is called Artificial Intelligence Creates New Songs, in quotation, uh, by Amy Winehouse and Nirvana. So this was an AI project, artificial intelligence project, focused on members of the 27 Club. For those that are unfamiliar, the 27 Club is a group of artists that all pass at the age of 27. A lot of it having to do with what we could describe as the rock and roll lifestyle and everything that goes with it. Members of the 27 Club include Janis Joplin and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. This project in particular focused on Amy Winehouse, 
Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, and Jim Morrison of The Doors, all of whom passed away at the young age of 27. And uh, it's a very short article, so I thought I would just sort of read a bit of it to you. Uh, it says, Over the Bridge is a Toronto-based organization which aims to diversify the conversations surrounding mental health in the music industry by providing an environment for members to feel comfortable, but also thrive in. The organization has used an AI algorithm and trained it on isolated hooks, rhythms, melodies, and lyrics by the aforementioned artists. The program studies the music, learning its compositions, and then translates them through a synthesizer to generate a new string of hooks, melodies, and rhythms. Following the process, an audio engineer took the AI-generated elements and composed the lost tapes of the 27 Club. As long as there's been popular music, musicians and crews have struggled with mental health at a rate far exceeding the general adult population, and this issue hasn't been ignored. It's been rom romanticized by things like the 27 Club, a statement from the organization explained. To show the world what's been lost to this mental health crisis, we've used artificial intelligence to create the album the 27 Club never had the chance to. Through this album, we're encouraging more music industry insiders to get the mental health support they need so they can continue making the music we all love for years to come because even ai will never replace the real thing and then there are four tracks uh on this website and like i said i i don't want to play them so we don't get flagged but uh they really do sound exactly like if kurt cobain or amy winehouse or whoever uh released a song today it's it's a really interesting project and i think such a great mission and ksenia has has said play them in the chat so how about carly could you let me screen share and i will play like five seconds of one of them no, play uh, more play more it's fine it's fine <laughs> play amy winehouse though that one is really good so ksenia has begged me in the chat to play one so i'll just play a few seconds of man i know which is the amy winehouse one just so you can get a picture of what it sounds like I got nothing to say, it's all wrong. All right, I'll stop it before the 30 second mark because maybe that'll be the, uh, the thing. But the, I, I was disappointed. The only thing, the article said that an audio engineer produced these. I, it didn't really say, I'm assuming that AI is not good enough that like the computer just made the song. I think they found basically like an impersonator for each of these people to to sing the songs. Uh, but yeah, did you guys check out these songs in this article? And what do you think? I, to me, it was kind of eerie. Like even just just that little bit like that sounds so much like Amy Winehouse. And it's, it's like, wait a minute, like, is this? I don't know, it, it's a little creepy. It's a, like, it sounds good. And it's cool to see like, what what will AI spit out if, you know, if they're trying to make something sound like so and so. The other thing that I thought is, uh, I, I want to hear what they do with Jeff Buckley. They didn't even mention Jeff Buckley. Yeah, is Jeff Buckley because I, I looked up the article on the 27 Club, and it didn't include him. So he might have not been 27. But I, I thought he was too. Let's see here. He was no Jeff Buckley was not 27. He yeah. was it looks like 30. I thought that was um, lovely. I loved it. I um, Nirvana's was strange. It sounded a little bit more like a bootleg thing, a, li a little bit stranger. Um, 
The... I actually thought the Nirvana one was spot on. To, I don't know, to me. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I thought so. It, it was it was pretty good, but it just was at some point it sounded like off key, like really off key. Um, like Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> like, hey, shh, you More don't sponge around me. I I jump through the <laughs> rooms and I attack people. <laughs> um, no, but I uh, I thought it was really really cool. But this song, I I thought that Amy Winehouse was just amazing. I'm actually gonna listen to this on repeat forever. And I don't know. I think it's insane. We've already spoken about these AI composers and how you know they're they're starting to get a life of their own, and uh, some of them are turning into these virtual personalities. Also, just like there are all those virtual models, for example. I don't know if you've seen any of those. They have their own Instagram accounts and they're all CGI, but they quote unquote behave like humans and they pretend that they have issues with bloating. So they take these pills and blah, blah. They're basically just, you know, marketing tricks, but people relate to that stuff. And, you know, why is it any different from another human being doing the same thing? If you like the outcome, if you like what this person advertises or what this AI makes musically, I don't know. So wait, with these these AI models on Instagram, is it like a they're meant to look like a real person, or it's like interesting because everybody knows it's AI? They are well. I have to look up. I can't remember the name of this model, but there is there is one that has millions of followers, and this model is quote unquote again booked to do really huge campaigns and they even do interviews like oh i just woke up and i just had breakfast and you're like you're you're programmed you do not eat <laughs> you know um but they are i mean they're very human but also there is something supernatural like they are you, you have to check them out they're a little bit there's a little bit of like manga influence a little bit of there's something fan fantasy-like about them too. Wow. Uh, just, wow. Very, very interesting where things are going. It's interesting. It's interesting. And really it's like, it's just, I don't know. I have weird feelings about it, but you know, with this article, actually the part that drew my attention even more than, than the songs and the, the 27 club and all of that was um, the article says that, I don't know the, the source or what survey it was, but 87% of musicians say their mental health has deteriorated since the start of the pandemic. Like that's, uh, I don't know who these, these lucky 13% are, um, but that's a big number. And then it also said 68% of musicians have experienced depression and that workers in the music industry are twice as likely as the general population, I suppose, non-musicians to commit suicide, which is like, that's a huge number, you know? Um, and we hear about like issues with substance abuse and depression and mental illness and all of this. And, and I suppose it all just feeds into it. Um, and so I was thinking about this and thinking like we wrap as musicians and artists so much of our identity and our worth as human beings into like our, our performing selves, our per performing identity. So then at the start of the pandemic, like all of a sudden that was gone. Like you're not a performer anymore. Guess what? You're somebody that sits on their couch like everybody else and is ordering groceries to be delivered. Um, you know, so I think that that's one of the big reasons it's so tough. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about taking care of yourself and mental wellness and, and physical wellness and all of that. But it's just, it's, it's tough. What do y'all think about that side of this? That's what I enjoyed about the article on the surface. I thought, 
I don't know how I feel about recreating or trying to create new work, gain profit of someone that's passed. But then when they put the mental health spin on it, like we don't need to forget these people, how can uh, their works still influence us? Or how can we remember their past works through this new music? I turned kind of how I was thinking about what they were trying to create. So I was glad they included I, all that mental health. I think like what Caitlin said is, is such a great statement about this project. Um, and it brings me to a, a, a similar project, not quite the same, but does anyone know when the last Beatles tune was recorded, what year? You're asking us for Beatles trivia? <laughs> I'm trying to show you how smart I am. Oh, the oh, last... oh that makes sense. I was yeah. thinking, like, how do you not know this, Ben? No, the, the <laughs> final ever Beatles tune was recorded in 1994. And if you're a math whiz out there, you know that that's several years after John Lennon uh, died. And so why would they record another tune? And basically they were doing what's, what was known as the Beatles Anthology Project. And uh, Yoko Ono had some demo tapes uh, by John Lennon. And she said here, like you can do with these what you want. And the three remaining members of the band said, basically, this is our last shot to celebrate the Beatles as a, as a quartet. Uh, and they said it was really emotionally difficult, but they went into the studio and they said they just sort of thought maybe John just took a break and you know went to get a coffee or something like that. And, and we were just recording, waiting for him to get back. And it's such a lovely idea in that case. But obviously, like if anyone wanted to, to just make money, I'm sure there's tons of unreleased John Lennon scratchy demo tapes around that you could cobble together several albums out of. So I think like the mission of, of what you're doing is so critical. And this project, they're not trying to just like create more Amy Winehouse songs to make money. They're saying, look at what has been lost. Look at what we could have had. We could have had this song and so many more. And it's highlighting such an important issue. And like, I think Carly and, and Caitlin both did such a wonderful job of talking about it. But like, I'm sitting here listening, thinking, you would think that actually musicians as an expressive bunch would get their feelings out and would have fewer issues with mental health. Uh, but I think that oftentimes, and maybe for the general non-professional musician population, people that just play music for fun, maybe that is the case. But oftentimes you look at someone like, not, not as a musician, but like Robin Williams had such an outpouring of creative work, but struggled so much internally with it. And so, yeah, I think that's that's such a, such an important topic for us to talk about and consider and think about for us and our peers. Yeah, it's tough, Ben. I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head. It's just like like we define ourselves in so many ways, in a, and sometimes in healthy ways by what we do, and we have meaningful careers that we care a lot about, and that's a really powerful thing. But gosh, it can turn ugly, I think, really easily. Um, you know, speaking about mental health and physical health, Caitlin, I know you serve on the PAS Health and Wellness Committee and you've given master classes and clinics on, you know, taking care of your body. And I think even I was thinking, I, I think at one point I found an article in Percussive Notes by you. Am I remembering that right? I couldn't find it. I was looking for it and for this episode and I couldn't find it, but it was, you know, like some stretches and I found it because a, a year ago I was having like computer neck and back and and i think you had like some foam roller exercises yeah, oh yeah i totally i found that and it helped me a lot like a year yeah. ago so anyway tell us a little bit um maybe what what do you think is the most important set of things for young percussionists to know or to be doing to avoid injuries yeah so i'll preface this with um 
you know, always make sure whoever you get any sort of health and wellness advice from, whether it's mental or physical, is certified. I'll preface with, I have um, like an ACE group fitness certification, NASM, PTA Global Personal Training, three other fitness I won't get into, but just make sure they're certified. So you're not just talking to Joe Schmo off the street about, you should lift 4,500 pounds when you squat, you know, make sure you're- It's just like, just like you need to be careful where you get your news from, like make sure it's yes. an actual source. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. So um, something I have just been always passionate about, and it's been since drum corps, I marched drum corps and got in really good shape, even though I was in the front ensemble, marched, was how do I keep this going in my everyday life? If I'm taking care of my body, it will only aid in taking care of my musical career. If I'm not taking care of my body, there will probably be issues down the road. So how do I bridge these two things together? So that's always been something I've been really excited about. I know Harnsberger is huge on it. So it's great studying with him and seeing his side of it. Someone that's had a long career and has had injuries. How did he get past them? Something that I usually will start with is whenever we get the behind the instrument, we need to be warm. There's a reason that track stars don't just go to the 400 meter dash right out the gate. They get warm first. If you have cold muscles, you're increasing your risk of injury. So you can use a heating pad. You can do daily warmups. You should always do daily warmups. Any sort of warmup routine behind the instrument that gets you physically ready. And with warmups, you're getting mentally ready. So if you're a student and you just took an exam and you're worried about what you wrote down on your test, you're not ready to play the instrument. You need to get mentally warm as well. So the second thing I talk about is technique. And this is something I could talk about technique all day because I love it. Sometimes it's too much. But if you're going to practice four hours a day and you don't have good technique, you're going to injure yourself. It's inevitable, right? We have to take the time to say, I need to hone my skills at this level so I can reach countless levels throughout my career. And if you're thinking about, I want to perform and you're an undergrad and you practice three hours a day in the practice room, two hours of ensemble a day, five days a week, and you're not having good technique, you're probably gonna get injured sometime in your undergrad, much less in your performing career. So yeah, those are two huge things. I could keep going if you guys want, or we could chat, it's up to you. Well, let's talk, let's go back. You mentioned you mentioned kind of your marching background and what I remember, like I marched snare in high school and we did not talk about like any kind of physical fitness or posture anything and what i know now is so different from what i knew then but like poor little 14 15 16 year old me is having like horrible back pains like the whole marching band experience was rough for me and now i know like oh we should have been doing core and back strengthening exercises just to be able to like be healthy and you know be able to handle everything so do you have any any kind of specific thoughts on what the state of, of I, I suppose, physical wellness in the marching community now? Yeah, I was just gonna say with like the heavy drums and the harnesses, and I'm sure the design has gotten better now, but like, I'm actually kind of surprised that like half of US percussion students aren't walking around with like back injuries. I mean, that yeah. is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Especially like a 14 year old kid that's not adult sized yet, yeah. I think there's a disconnect. Um, I've noticed it specifically in percussion methods, this idea that we're going to change everything when you get to college. That's when we're going to really take music seriously and get good technique and good healthy habits. Well, why aren't we doing that to our 12 year olds in middle school? Like, why are we just saying, figure it out? We're going to be on the field eight hours today. We're going to do it seven days this week. One, two, three, let's go. I mean, there's, it's, yeah, I, 
could rant about it. There's a, just a disconnect. I know a lot of people are changing that though, having percussion instructors, having consultants that either are nurses and know that if a student gets injured, we can quickly help them out. Having some sort of someone maybe from the PE program helping them out as well. Just getting any sort of exercises that can strengthen, like you said, the core, the upper muscles of the back are huge, the muscles of the shoulders, the muscles of the arms. Yeah, big issues if you're not thinking about that. I think part of it boils down to like, I mean, we train as musicians, we, and no one signs up for sixth grade band because they want to do lower back exercises or anything like that. Um, and so I think it's, and I've never, when I was in college, it was never addressed in any of my classes and, and my percussion methods class, I just sort of mention it. <laughs> just like, you gotta be careful. And that's about all I can really intelligently say about it. Um, but I think one thing that might help is maybe manufacturers should provide like better guidelines, like included with the harness on how to set it up and make sure it fits. And uh, females are built differently than males. And so how should you set it up for a female or a male student? So yeah, I don't know. I think maybe manufacturers could could throw us a bone. I'm sure that they have like orthopedic consultants they work with, uh, I, I would hope to develop these harnesses, but I've, I've never seen any MD's name on any packaging or anything like that. Come on, no pain, no gain. If you don't bleed, it's not worth it. That's how we do it. I just, I remember when I was, when I was in college and I, I had a very brief affair with a uh, drum corps, which I did not go through with, uh, but they were playing like the, you know, the green exercise, like a scale exercise, holding like those heavy mallets, playing with the inside mallets and they just kept on forcing the metronome higher. And it's like, we're doing this at like 180 beats per minute. Like that's hard to do with two mallets, much less four mallets. And maybe the guy that's like a veteran that can do it, that's fine. But like, I just remember I left one of these camps with like, like literally like a quarter size blister in the middle of my hand from Steven's grip. And it's like, this is just, it's not healthy that I should say that particular organization, not all drum corps. And I know there are some that do very well with that, especially today. I think it's gotten a lot better. I think it's gotten better too, at least in my perception. And I know there's so much variety. I think what's what's hard sometimes is like there's really high potential for injury, overuse injury. And then like like Senny said, no pain, no gain. I've had students, you know, we're talking and they're like, oh, I have this, you know, sensation in my wrist. And I'm like, well, if it's hurting when you're playing, don't do it. And they're like, oh, that's the opposite of what I learned in drumline. Um, and I know that's not across the board, but it's, it's kind of just this, I don't know, this cultural thing where if we're not in pain, we're not working hard enough. And that's, that can be really hard to overcome. I have a I have a blister horror story too, Ben. But mine was from I no I can't remember. I guess it was on my right hand. I actually got a blister in like my right hand snare drum fulcrum in high school. Like it was just one of those like super intense all day all week band camp weeks. It was you know, pleasant. Carly. I have to say, watching you learn corporel at Miami, I I would love to play that piece, but the teeth click thing, I I, I just I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you never said that to me. All those oh, years, God, of like, course you would hate the teeth click. Yeah, so if anyone doesn't know me, I, like teeth are a thing for me. I'm very particular. I use a Sonicare. I use nice toothpaste. I floss. I use mouthwash, like the whole nine yards. And in this piece, you have to just chomp your teeth. And it has to make, I'm like, oh, God, I can't. I, I will never play that piece. I'm sorry. I know it's a great piece, but I cannot do that. 
<laughs> well, I mean, you could probably you could probably do something a little different. Maybe maybe I'll I'll record it and sample it in. That'd be a great yeah use of yeah recording. yeah. Then, you know, you put like I don't know some a sponge or something in between. I'll get yeah I'll get Carly's teeth sample and and overlay it on mine. <laughs> God. Speaking of all of that spit that you shared in Miami, now share some teeth also. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is getting... and we shared. You were there too, Ksenia. Weird. It's I always had my own tambourine that only I get to spit on. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we should all do from now on. Ksenia, just to be clear, you don't actually spit on the tambourine. It's <laughs> <laughs> I do. I pick it up and I. <laughs> And now in we... Serbia, that's how you do it. <laughs> you show the tambourine where it belongs. <laughs> then the, the thumb rolls are foolproof. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get in touch with Matt Strauss about that. <laughs> oh God. We'll have to have him back on. Um, well, you know, on, along these lines, rescuing us from this trail we're going down, um, Caitlin, <laughs> you mentioned that emphasizing the importance of warm-ups with students and it was, you know, this past year, probably I found myself asking students a lot, like, tell me what you do when you're like, before you start working on your piece of marimba. And I had always assumed I give them these, these warmups. I'm very specific in my warmups that like for a long time, I think I just assumed they all did it perfectly every day. And that like they understand, you know, if you're practicing for an hour, you do these exercises for 15 minutes, that kind of thing. But when I started asking that question, that pointed, I found out like, they'll be like, oh, actually, um, I didn't warm up this week or, you know, those those questions. And I think it's way more common than than our idealized teacher minds think it should be. But then I think about when I was 18 or 20 or 22, like I wasn't always perfectly religious about it either. So do you have any like secret sauce for getting getting your students to to know, like to really do and maybe even to love the warm ups? Yeah, I think it is a big shift. And I don't know if I hadn't done drum corps, if I would have been able to get to this spot of technique, technique, warm up, warm up, you know, because um, now I just love it and I can't practice without it. I think they have to fully commit to it, let's say for a month. And then if they were to not do it for a week, the next month, they will realize their hands are not going to function how they should. Their brain's not going to be mentally ready. They're not gonna be making good sounds on the instrument. They're probably gonna start feeling things they hadn't felt before if they're just jumping into a choppy piece on marimba or snare drum without getting warm. Cause now they're used to, okay, I'm gradually easing into my repertoire and now we're just gonna go full force. Yeah, their body's not gonna be ready. So I think it's just, yeah, and you have to be on them. I mean, I did the same thing. I have, I had new students this past year and said, here's what you're gonna do. And we had to go over it every week for several months of the semester. You must be doing this. I promise you. Trust, trust. I promise. You know. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good thought. Like, stick with it for a month, and that's like I have students that I know do the exercises. I give them religiously, regularly, the way that I want them to, and that's what they say. They'll be like, "Well, when I don't do it, I realize like my hands don't feel as ready for the repertoire." Yeah, and the other thing is making sure they realize it's daily. If you isolate technique once a week, you're never going to get to the level you want. It has to be every time you step behind the instrument. I think that's another disconnect of, oh, I did it every Monday. I'm good. No, did you do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Took a day off Saturday, came back Sunday, you know? Commit 100%, all or nothing. Yeah, there it is. There it is. I think also one thing that that... I try to address is you, you actually have to, this sounds weird, but you have to practice practicing. 
And so all of us here with our fancy degrees are like, if I said, Carly, go practice for five hours, like Carly could actually do that and be productive. But if you had a sixth grade beginning student and you said practice for five hours, like do what? <laughs> there's there's just not not that much to do. And so I think, yeah, part of it is like building it in, but also like one thing I stress with my students is like, we all have those days where either you're really busy or to put it bluntly, like you're just not feeling it. Like you just don't really wanna go put in an hour of practice, something like that. Uh, and it's like, okay, just at the bare minimum on those days, get in your 20, 30 minute, whatever it is, warm up routine. Like if nothing else, you can just maintain the level of your hands and you can go back tomorrow and actually learn more notes. And I, I obviously you don't wanna make a habit out of not feeling it every day, but at least you can do something to maintain yourself. And I think, especially for snare drum, like having a practice pad routine. So it's like, no excuse. Like, even if I've been busy all day, I get home at 10 PM, like I can put in my 30 minutes before I go to bed. Like it's not, it's not that big of a deal. I'd like to focus on mental health a little bit. And uh, particularly, obviously last year has been blank. Um, and I've, come to notice that, you know, uh, doing all of those things, which make sense and are on everybody's list, you know, make sure you seek counseling, make sure you have an outlet, make sure that you build your support system. Da, da, da. Um, there's still a lot of people who are, who are struggling and suffering, and there is an increased uh, frequency of conversations that are really disheartening among young people. So I wonder if you have any tips, tricks, advice for educational institutions on, you know, what they could do, say, on a regular basis to help out their students, especially musicians. Again, that's in a, we're in a special category with how we're losing our connection. Um, what do you, what do you have for us, Caitlin? Yeah, I've been very thankful. Like I mentioned, Lee has been in person this year and obviously that just being in person was a huge plus for us. But I think in terms of if you're the leader of your studio, the teacher, what can you do to not feed into it? Because the second you feed into it, all the students, they're feeding into it too. So for us, it was, okay, we're gonna do these recording projects. Students, you're gonna do them too. Let's make it happen. Let's all do it together. If you're not in person, what can you do as a teacher to keep your students motivated, to not let them just be scrolling on Instagram eight hours of their day and just sinking further into that dark hole of, I'm never going to be able to get out of this pandemic and be a musician like I want to be. So I think it a lot of it starts with the teachers and maybe even further administration, of course, but how are you helping your studio out? You know, we have to play all the roles, which is really hard sometimes. I think one thing I would like to add is whether it's mental health or physical health, one big thing is just do something. If you feel a pain in your wrist, don't just say, I think it'll go away and do nothing about it. Like try stretching at the very least, or if you're having some sort of anxiety or depression issues, talk to someone about it. And we talked about the importance of talking to like a licensed professional, but even if it's just a friend to start, like absolutely. I mean, yeah, we all have an off day or something like that, but if it's a problem that you feel creeping up there, you will get nothing out of it if you do nothing. And I know that sounds like the obvious, but taking the first step in any issue is like, absolutely paramount so that's my two cents on it 
Well, and Ben, that's so huge too, even with like, we all deal with procrastination sometimes, right? Like putting things off. And so often like that doesn't make the problem better, might feel better in the mean, like in the, in the meantime for that, you know, day or hour or whatever that you're putting things off, but it, it just makes it worse. And I think with anything mental or physical, um, it's just, it's, it's rough. You know, one, one thing that I'll add is, is conversations like the, all the, kind of incidental conversations that we have in our normal lives like and, and Caitlin you've been in person I've been virtual the whole year um, plus a year year plus a couple months um, and so I've been making a really concerted effort to like how are you doing and not just good like okay yeah I'm good too let's get into the music but like really what's going on in your life and and the, even the little things I don't know if y'all have done this on zoom but little things like when I've got two students back to back, I'll be like at the end of one lesson, like, hey, I'm gonna let so and so in the room so you guys can like wave at each other like normal times, you know, just those little things like say hi and, and the things like the conversations you would have they would have in the hallway waiting for their lesson or, or even hearing each other like in the practice rooms and, and all of that, like, I think that's so important for mental health right now. Well, Caitlin, as we move toward wrapping here, we did have one Instagram question we wanted to make sure to get to from Sam Riddick. He says, hey, Caitlin, my question is, how did you get started playing percussion? Oh, that's awesome. Um, I'll give a shout out to my parents, not musicians at all, just musical lovers. And part of our growing up was we had to take piano lessons, 8 to 18, very serious. I had the best piano teacher ever, Mara Lossoms in Florida. And the other part of growing up was you had to play a sport and you had to take another instrument when you got into middle school. It's very rigorous, which is part of probably why I love technique and structure and routine. And so um, just went to the middle school band room and did the clapping test and percussion it was. And that's how it all started. I wish it was something cooler, but yeah, I'm obviously very thankful it all panned out. So did you get so placed on percussion or did you get to choose? Uh, like did the little audition with the clapping can you do like one and two and and uh that's how it went down and so they, they said, were okay, like do, are you okay with other people's spit or is that something <laughs> we need to uh <laughs> well caitlin i guess uh one sort of add-on question beyond that uh what it sounds like you had a very sort of uh disciplined upbringing uh and you know i'm sure you were focused academically it sounds like you were doing sports as well and music uh what made you choose to go all in on music as a career oh that's a great question um probably a combination of my piano and percussion teacher growing up just being supportive but being real they never just said oh my gosh you're the best ever yay when I wasn't they said okay let's work on this this is going well let's keep moving forward and I think that just created a real passion for it to if they see me progressing and I see myself progressing I'm really starting to fall in love with it and I just didn't really see myself doing anything else so here we are I always feel like when people ask that question, I can't relate to the story of like, oh, I had all those pots and pans and I played and everybody knew I was a drummer. I was a nice kid. I put the pots and pans away. It never it never occurred to me. Uh, but Caitlin, I saw that you um, you played Roman Boyajiev's Marimba Concerto, right? You yes. did the premiere. Tell us about that. That's awesome. I saw that Vasilena Serafimova played that, which She's our she's our homie in Europe over there. How was how was your experience? That's awesome. Okay, so that is yeah, that connection was crazy. So 
I got my master's at Lee University and right as I was coming in, a other grad student was leaving. Her name is Sarah Pearson. She's a phenomenal conductor. So she met Roman at a festival and he said, you know, if you ever wanna play my work, here it is basically. So Sarah was getting ready for a concert. I was in my doctorate at USC and she said, I have this concerto, I'm just throwing it out there. Would you wanna play it? And of course, you know, you have to say yes. You don't say no, right? So that's how it all panned out. So I got to play it with her orchestra and I've gotten to play it twice with a pianist as well. And I'm actually hoping, fingers crossed, they had a meeting about it that I'll get to do it again with the pianist next year. So it's a, I love that piece. It's awesome. I hope more people play it and we get some more concertos going from other composers besides our standards. Yeah, awesome, awesome, really cool. That's so great. It's so hard to plan concerto performances right now. Just, I mean, right now for the last 14 months and who knows next year or so, but awesome. You know, Caitlin, I wanted to ask you one more question um, on, on the health side of things before, before we move away from that too far. Um, I want to know what, what kinds of warm-ups and stretching or strength building exercises do you incorporate into your routine? And, and based on that article and percussive notes that I read, I think you're pretty active, um, you know, and, and so how does that, how does your, your exercise and like that side of your life inform your playing and how do the two relate? Yeah. If I could really add one more question to that, uh, I just wanted to ask uh, who benches more, you or Andy? <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> right now, him, I've been practicing too much. I worked out. So <laughs> we're both like, when are we going to go to the gym? We have to practice. Oh my gosh. So, um, and that's part of life. That's okay. You know, things go up, things come down, they come back. Oh, so um, where were we going with this? <laughs> oh, so the health and wellness. All right. So when I was getting ready for doctoral auditions, I got to a point where I had debilitating pain in my left shoulder and I was like, something has to be done about this. This is not okay. I have these fitness certifications. Why is this happening? And a huge, huge help. And this is not for everyone. This is, you know, talk to your doctor first was I needed more weight training for my back specifically. I was using my back muscles to play marimba and they were not where they needed to be to be playing five hours a day to get ready. So since then, that's like 2015, 2016, I've been on a pretty structured weightlifting routine. Like I said, until it's like right before a performance or a recording session. So in terms of weightlifting, it's big muscles of the upper back, shoulders. And whenever you do something for one part of the body, you have to do the opposite. So if you're going to hit the big muscles of the upper back, you also have to hit the chest. You can't just do one without doing opposing muscle groups. So that's been huge. The other thing that I do frequently, and I'm so glad you got to use this was it's foam rolling. So this is called self myofascial release. If it's the same thing as getting a massage. So instead of going and getting a massage, you can use a foam roller. Massage is $60 an hour. Usually foam rollers, $20. It lasts 10 years. And you can roll your fascia, which surrounds your muscles. It's a protective sheath and it gets bunched up when you have overactive muscles. So we want to lengthen it back out. And when you lengthen it back out, we inhibit overactive muscles. We feel better. We're physically stretching. We're bringing muscle recovery. We're decreasing soreness. So all these things pair together to create a daily routine. If I don't have my weightlifting and my self myofascial release, I am going to notice that I'm going to start getting shoulder pain, specifically my left shoulder, when I practice marimba weeks at a time. So you start to see everything just comes full circle. You take out one piece, it's going to alter the others. 
Well, you explained the foam roller and myofascial release so much better than I could have because I would have just said it's gold and you definitely should invest in a foam roller. Um, for real, it's gotten me through so much. Like in the past year, I, I've been doing it for a while, but in this past year, it's like a regular thing. A lot of days before I even practice, I'm like, I got to do it. And sometimes during the day too, like I'm in the computer all the time. Um, it's it's worth the investment for sure. That's awesome. And, uh, I'm so glad you do that. If you don't own a foam roller, you can also, as an alternative, just use marimba resonators, just take them off, put them on the side and just kind of lay back on them and roll up and down. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Make an instructional video, please. <laughs> and so I think that's, Malatech actually designed that MJB marimba specifically for that. That's why, that's why the little, yeah, okay. Um, well, Caitlin, I do also want to say, like, I appreciate that you're willing to say, yeah, I was having pain when I was playing because there's kind of still this stigma. And I had years, like four or five years ago, this elbow issue. It was, um, what's it? Tennis elbow, no golfer's elbow I had on the inside. And I was like, like, I felt like, oh, I don't want to tell anyone about it. It's kind of embarrassing. Like people will think I don't have good technique, you know, but it was just a matter for me. It was, it was like the, the muscle, the upper back and, and specifically the shoulder blades, like being able to have better posture when I'm playing. Um, and, you know, so I did some physical therapy and learned a lot of exercises and that's when I started foam rolling, but it's, I think really important to talk about it because I mean, I, I, I think I see this with my students too. They don't want to say, oh, I have tendonitis. They don't want to say like, hey, I have this issue. And probably a lot of professionals also like just don't don't want to because it, it I mean, it made me think like, do I need to re-examine my technique, which I did, which is also always a positive, but I appreciate you talking about it. Yeah, there is, um, if I could just share this, I took a picture um, from one of my presentations, this quote, um, there's this book, Musician's Way by Clickstein is his last name. And he quotes, it's all about health and wellness for musicians. And he, one of the quotes was, people take such wonderful care of their $40,000 violin or $10,000 flute. They need to take care of their bodies the same way. So there's just often, a, I mean, musicians are notoriously can be unhealthy, but we're going to take care of our instrument. Well, your body is part of your instrument. If you don't have a, your body in good shape, like what are you going to do 20 years from now? Yeah. So it all comes together. Yeah. And the instrument is not going to play itself. Yeah. Carly, Carly talked about there's this sort of stigma behind admitting that you have a problem because you don't want people to think you have bad technique. Like that's not, not a good thing to admit. Uh, but if it helps anyone, there's an old PAS article. You can look it up uh, that Lee Howard Stevens uh, was having bursitis in his shoulder. Uh, and he said, I think it was around the time he was graduating from Eastman. He was practicing a lot. And also for a side gig, he picked up, uh, he was painting the ceilings of the practice rooms. And I guess that rolling, you know, the Ooh. paint thing on the ceiling and constantly doing weird shoulder positions playing marimba uh, started to get to him. So yeah, no shame in admitting that you've had something like that. And it probably helps other people if you mention it. Yeah, well, that was one thing too, when I when I was going through the elbow stuff, like I felt like, I mean, I felt like I was scared. I think like everybody, every percussionist or musician who gets an injury, like, is this going to be forever? Am I going to get better? I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, it's, it's from having that experience, now I can talk students through it. I can, you know, help them share. Of course, like I'm never diagnosing issues and saying here, do 10 reps of this exercise. Like I'm not qualified for that, but just even the, the talking through it as far as like, you are going to get better 
go see this specialist, you know, and, and, and no, it doesn't mean you're a bad musician or a bad professionist. It's just part of life. We're human and our bodies are fallible and, you know, normal, normal stuff. I wish it wasn't normal and we want to minimize it, but well, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to, to hear about your experiences and speak with you. We appreciate it. So we'll see you, see you all on the next episode. Thank you guys. Bye.